Hello and welcome to the Pinnacle Podcast, brought to you by Pinnacle.com, the online bookmaker that offers you the best odds, highest limits and a unique winner's welcome policy. Today's episode is all about predictive modelling and how it can be applied to sports betting, so it's a good thing I'm joined by a man who's authored a book called Statistical Sports Models in Excel. A very warm welcome to Andrew Mack. Hi Ben. How are you Andrew, you alright? I'm doing well, and yourself? Yeah, I'm very well, excited about this one. So what we'll do is, obviously, as I said there, we're, we're going to be talking about modelling today. I think just to get us started, we can maybe take a step back a bit and you can give us an intro into kind of who you are and what you did before and, and how you got into betting. Sure. Yeah. Well, my name is Andrew Mack. Um, currently a third year law school student, uh, as well as pursuing an online master of data science through James Cook University. And... When I'm not doing either of those things, I'm uh, modeling a number of different sports and betting on them. And um, for me, this all started uh, a long time ago. Uh, prior to law school, I was a journeyman electrician. And, um, you know, my, my first introduction to, to gambling really was um, sometime around 2007, there was a bit of a poker boom going on in Alberta. Um, with No Limit Hold'em and uh, online poker sites being very, very popular, as, as they were in many places around the world. I uh, had a number of good friends of mine that uh, were professional poker players, and I played quite a bit of poker back then. I uh, wasn't, wasn't uh, terrific at it, I would say, but made a little bit of money and uh, in cash games at... Um, at physical casinos in, in Alberta and also a little bit of money at full tilt poker before it got shut down. Um, in, and I would say that, you know, just, just before I get to, you know, my, my real entry into sports betting, I should probably introduce a little bit about my, the mathematical foundation, because I think that that's important too. I have an undergrad in social science and did take a few introductory statistics courses back then, but um, I'd be lying if I said I paid a tremendous amount of attention to it at the time. It, it did, actually didn't seem super interesting, and I think maybe that was because most of the data that uh, we were concerned with working with was um, was census data. It was uh, disease uh, per population and things like that, and, and at the time I didn't find it overly interesting, but I did take a few of those courses. And with my electrical uh, trade school background, most of electrical trade math is algebra, basic calculus, trigonometry, uh, circuit calculations, power triangles, three-phase electricity, uh, troubleshooting and problem solving, things like that. And I think that that, having that uh, really helped, uh, even though at the time I wasn't aware of it. Um, So in 2011, somewhere around there, I picked up uh, an ebook called uh, "Do-It-Yourself Sports Betting Systems." Um, not not an overly technical book, but the basic premise was to hunt for undervalued dogs. You were basically, you know, according to the author, you were looking for a 500 uh, team with a 500 or better record in the home or away situation. With, uh, with positive dog odds, so 2.0 decimal odds or better. So you're basically, we're trying to find 50-50 coin flips that paid out better than one-to-one. And um, that, that was actually my very, very first introduction to the idea that 
you know, there could be some, some system involved in betting on sports. Now, being a complete novice at the time, I mostly ignored the author's advice and, and took a shot at picking my own winners, specifically in the NHL, which is where I started, uh, mostly on the puck line and the money line. But really, I was just betting based on my personal opinions of the games. Uh, hockey was a sport that I'd watched most of my life and uh, and was quite interested in. And, you know, I would have strong opinions about various teams. Oh, this player is hot right now. These these guys can't win a game, et cetera, et cetera. And um, didn't really have too much interest in other sports at the time. Now, uh, just, just betting based on my own personal opinions went about as, as well as you would imagine. I, I lost considerably in the beginning, probably in the first two years. Um, you know, while I did win sometimes, I was the, the overall trend was losing money for sure. And probably was, was close to about $10,000 over two years of losses. Um, and, you know, it started to sink in that, you know, there's, there's more to this than just picking who you think is likely to win. And there's got to be more to this than just your, your own sort of gut shot opinion. And I had a bit of an epiphany when, um, when I discovered Bill James's Pythagorean expectation. And the reason that that kind of clicked for me was because, well, it's not exactly the same as Pythagorean theorem. Pythagorean theorem is something that I used a lot of in electrical trade school because it's used to calculate uh, variable power and reactive power in power triangles. And so, you know, it kind of clicked for me. I realized, oh, there's a, there's a mathematical basis to this. Um, I'm going to probably need to use math to solve this problem, just like you do with electrical problems. And that really is what led me down the rabbit hole of statistical analysis and eventually model making. So you've got, I mean, there seems like there's a lot of kind of loose ends that were going on here. You said like that, that statistical background, the work that you did, obviously the a bit of relative success to do with poker and interest in sports and everything like that. And was it kind of, that initial change that you said, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch up the approach and I'm gonna start to take this seriously. What was the was it easy to kind of stick to that or did you fall did you find yourself falling back into those gut picks or the trying to trust your knowledge over what a model said or, or what the data said? That's a great question. I would say that I made most mistakes that I think a lot of beginners make. Um so definitely the, it was not a linear path to success. Um I certainly didn't have this realization and then and then never stray from it. Um, you know, definitely I, I had a few a few setbacks. Uh, ultimately, when you're a beginner, you just you have um, I think what's what's been turned unconscious incompetence, right? You don't know what you don't know, and so um, and and so you think, okay, well these these gut shot picks aren't doing very well, but. Uh, this what about this trend stuff? What about uh, what about this team's record against the spread, for example, or something, or um, or or their their last five games or the last ten games? You, you know, I, I definitely looked at every different avenue, and as a result, you know, fell into some of the traps that I think a lot of people just starting out fall into in in terms of not 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 being able to to properly identify. Okay, this this is probably not helpful and here's why well tried a a bunch of different things and and many of them didn't work and unfortunately with sports betting um 
you largely have to build your own kind of toolbox or arsenal yourself. And, and part of that is taking a few, a few hits along the way to learn some things the hard way. And certainly that was the case for me. Yeah, it's it's probably quite easy for you to to look back now and think, God, I was square back then. I didn't know what I was doing. But at that point in time, did you kind of you said you were losing a bit of money and stuff like that? Did you did you know you were quote unquote square as a better, or or did you kind of just think I'm I'm having a, a run of rotten luck here, like it's going to turn around? What was your was what was your mindset? Did you think you were going to kind of win money and you were doing it the right way? I, I, from those, from that time, I recall being, being really frustrated when I, when I didn't win. Like I, I actually had an expectation of winning, but I didn't have a reasonable basis for that. And I don't know that I was even aware of the sharp square, um, you know, categorization or dichotomy at that point. I, I was really just thinking, you know, um, why isn't this working? There's got to be a way to do this. I just haven't found it yet. And I, I tried to keep a positive attitude, but but ultimately, like I said, it, I just didn't know what I didn't know. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't, there were so many elements to sports betting, whether it's staking size, whether it's, um, you know, the, the proper statistical techniques that can help you actually make a reasonably accurate forecast. So many different things that I just wasn't aware of. And it's, um, I, I think that, you know, in many ways, I'm grateful for those mistakes because they, they led me to where I am now but but it was definitely a a rocky road in the beginning there for sure and so obviously the for me I'm I'm putting these things together and you got the the previous work and the sports fan getting serious about betting and then this this law school thing then comes along as well is that just something that at the time were you thinking kind of career-wise betting you were getting serious but not really seeing it as an avenue to kind of earn a living and the law school kind of thing was just an interest in terms of career development so law school is a kind of an interesting story for me. I I really enjoyed being an electrician. Um, you know, you, you really have get the uh, get a sense of satisfaction from building something um, and and doing it well and using math to to solve problems. Um, I really enjoyed the work. What what was becoming an issue for me was that my body was breaking down. Um, so the injuries were piling up. And I'm not that old, you know, at, at the time, I, I think I was 32. And, you know, the, the, the stories that I could tell about, about some of those things would curl your hair, straighten it back out again. Uh, I, on a, you know, I'd finish my last day of the week would be Friday. On Saturday morning, I would used to take about a thousand milligrams of ibuprofen so that I could close my hands enough to hold a cup of coffee. Uh, <laughs> um you know, you wake up on the weekends and your knees hurt and your elbows hurt and your hands are swollen. And, um, you know, like I said, some of the injuries were piling up. I broke my foot. Uh, I broke my big toe. I tore uh, my right rotator cuff. So, you know, some of those things, you know, being a bit of a, a bigger guy, you know, six foot three, 260 pounds, uh, you're asked on a job site to do a lot of the really, really heavy lifting. You know, if there's a piece of equipment that nobody else can move, that's something that you're going to be tasked with doing. And, you know, I was happy to do that, but that, um, those kind of things started to take a toll. And I, I started thinking to myself, you know, if this is what this is like at 32 with, you know, the injuries and the, the relative, uh, you know, 
chronic pain that I was having, what, what would it look like at 42 or 52 or, or 62, you know? And I realized that the odds were pretty good that, um, you know, I wasn't going to be able to do a whole lot physically, um, you know, 10, 20 years down the road. So if I was thinking about different options, maybe I should look at that now. And that's when I really looked into law school. I studied for the LSAT when I got home from working electrical and really got admitted to law school on the strength of my LSAT. I had a very, very strong LSAT and, uh, and, and as a result, uh, was admitted. And, and my plan really was, um, two, two things were, were sort of at the forefront of my mind. The first one was, a, you know, worst case scenario, I come out the other side of this with a law degree, I can practice law, and that's something that I can do without, uh, you know, racking up all of these injuries for the next 20, 30 years. But the other idea that was in the back of my mind was, Law school will also give you some time to think. It will give you some time to refine the models that you've been working on. And if that goes well, um, there is a, a good possibility that, you know, you can take a serious shot at betting sports professionally. So those, those were kind of the two, the two driving factors for me. So you put your body under enough strain, so then you decided to put your some mind mind under some strain with the, the perils of law school and, and betting. That's right, yeah. I think we've got some we've got some really good insight into kind of where you've come from in your career and in general as well in terms of betting. So let's talk about more your your day-to-day life now. So you, you obviously keep yourself very busy with everything that's going on at the moment. Has that has that always been the case? Is that kind of part of your makeup as a person? Uh, I, I don't think so, actually. I think that this is just, uh, I'm, in a, I'm in a unique position here where uh, law school is going, is going well, and I've found a way to kind of structure my classes spread out throughout the course of the day in such a way that I'm able to squeeze a little bit more out of, um, out of the time that I have. And um, where I'm at with my modeling, and um, I'm also able to to sort of squeeze in the masters as well. And you know, it's pretty tight. Like there are some days where I might skip a class in order to finish uh, an assignment for the masters, or 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 vice versa. Um, but but I'm I'm able to make it all to make it all work. I would say that I'm definitely running pretty close to maxed out, and and this is definitely not. Uh, I don't think that it's ideal. I think that. Um, sports betting generally would would be better for me if i had a little bit less on my plate and and for that reason i'm looking forward to being finished with law school so that i can really just focus on it um, a lot more when it comes to the the balance of law school and betting and the the statistical side of things do do they kind of complement each other in terms of a skill set or is it is it almost a hindrance that you kind of got to shift from this mindset of of law brain to then this data-driven betting brain how does how does that work yeah that's a really good question i would say that you know there's two elements to that two sides to that coin the the first part is that there are elements about law school that that do complement and i would say that with respect to those um law the the understanding the learning of law it's it's an inherently probabilistic discipline even though it's not science-based, you might consider it the art of probabilistic thinking rather than the science or mathematics of it. 
it really forces you to question certainty because every case precedent, every fact pattern, every legal argument, there is there is a counterpoint or a counter argument or a, a case precedent that disagrees. And so nothing is 100% certain. There are no 100% winning cases or 0% winning cases. It's, it's always a question of stronger or weaker arguments or more likely or less likely to succeed in, in any given legal context. And so that, that I think that that type of thinking generally is helpful for sports betting because it, it helps to prevent against overconfidence um, where you realize that even when you have an exceedingly strong case or a very strong argument, there are, there are counterpoints to consider and you really shouldn't think of anything as a, you know, quote unquote lock. And that's as true in law as it is in sports betting. Even when most of the law is on your side or in the case of betting, you know, most of the probability is on your side. You know, uh, an 88% chance of winning is not a lock. It's 88%, right? The, um, so I would say that, that that element is very, very helpful and definitely complementary, as you, as you said. Um, the, the part that, that's difficult, at least for me, is that legal argumentation is in many ways the reverse process of the scientific process. Because you actually start with the outcome that you want, and then you work with the case law and the arguments and the fact pattern that's available to lead to your foregone conclusion. And so you sort of work from the the end goal back through the facts, which is the opposite of, of what we're trying to do with most statistical analysis. We don't we don't want to have um, a preconceived notion of, of what's going to happen. We need to test things and we need to question assumptions and um, and things of that nature. And so I think that sometimes for me that that's a lot to keep in your mind simultaneously, you know, the um, the two very, very different modes of thinking. But that being said, I think that learning to think critically and analytically, whether you're using it for law or sports betting is a very useful skill. And then when you do have time to put put into the betting side of things, what's the kind of process that you're going through? Is it how much time are we waiting to the, the building of models or the development of models versus the actual act of running those models, finding the bets and placing the bets? I would say that it's very, very heavy on the, uh, on the creating and testing and finding. And once, once you get them up and running, um, there's not a whole lot to it other than, you know, you then become much more involved in monitoring, changing game conditions like uh, lineup changes or injuries. and uh, market price movements and a little bit of calculation with regard to staking size, you know, so if you want to use fractional Kelly on multiple simultaneous bets, there's, there's some additional calculations to be done there. But other than, than that, I would say that running the models is, is uh, relatively uh, light on the workload compared to the building of the model. And I mean, I think that's pretty straightforward to most listeners because most model ideas just don't work out. So you need to have a lot of them and you need to keep trying things. And, and that's time intensive. It's, um, I wouldn't say that it's completely a brute force type of thing, but in many ways it can feel like that when, you know, you've, you've been working on a model for, you know, 40 hours and it turns out that it's not very good. You know, it can feel like a bit, little bit of a, a brute force endeavor. Um, but, but I would say that, yeah, if, if you almost wanted to consider it like a Pareto principle, I would say 80% is on the, the building, 
the conceptualization, the testing, and 20% would be, you know, running them and updating them and, and making sure that everything is running smoothly. And as you said there, there's kind of so much that goes into um, whether it's lineup changes or, or the odds simply moving and the market moving and stuff like that. If you're if you're so limited for time, are you are you are you manually betting or are you is it an automated process for you through APIs and things like that? I would like to eventually move to automation through through APIs. Like I know Pinnacle has a great um, a great R package for doing things like that, but I haven't done that just yet because I want to um, personally kind of inspect and approve every bet that my model would you know suggest betting on before it actually goes through i don't that that's just kind of kind of me though i don't know that it's necessarily better to do it that way i definitely can tell you that you know once i have more free time and law school is finished i do plan on on transitioning to more of a full automation just to um to lighten some of the the workload that i have for myself some things i have that are are automated now which is nice but definitely I need to move more in that direction to become more efficient with my with my time, and um, and and to speak back to your point about you know time limitations, um, the net effect of that at this point is that basically there there are some days where I'm just not able to bet because I'm not able to actually you know take a look at all the necessary factors and uh, place the bet at the appropriate time, and so you know there's a couple of days a week where I might just not be able to bet that day. Uh, because of my other time commitments. So I try to get it in uh, a a few days of the week and the weekends at, at the moment. Right, I do want to get on to, to modeling in your book very shortly. There's just a, a, a couple more questions just to, for me to kind of get to know like your kind of betting behavior as it is kind of at the moment. Are you obviously it's model led but are you betting on specific markets or specific sports at the moment uh yes as of uh right now um i betting predominantly on the nhl as it uh, just opened up recently so nhl money line totals occasionally the puck line um some nhl props including shots saves goals points i um I'm eagerly anticipating the start of the regular NBA season because that will will be a um, a very high volume market for me. Um, with and and in that market, I'll be looking at quarters, halves, and full game point spreads and totals for props. It will be player points, points, rebounds, assists as one prop, turnovers, three points made, uh, blocks, and steals, and. Um, I think a little bit of CFL, and I think that's most of it right now, as as of uh, this period in the year. Um, with regards to other seasons in the year, I mean, other things that I, I've I've done or or look at. Um, MLB was a tough season for me, uh, mostly because I've had some trouble forecasting the bullpen, and so that's. Well, I continue to try and, and sort of work out the kinks on the, the full game models. Uh, most of my betting for the MLB that, that's been successful has been prop bets. So strikes, uh, hits, runs, errors as a prop, home runs, runs in the first inning. And a little bit of uh, first five innings because um, usually it's your starting the starting pitchers that are still playing at that point. And so 
I, um, I've had a little bit more success with that. But really, over the course of the year, anything that I think I might have an edge on, um, I will take a look at. I do some NFL props as well, pass attempts, passing yards, receiving yards, rushing yards, touchdowns, um, a little bit of small league Euro basketball, as, as has been mentioned in the book. And I think our previous um, Pinnacle podcast chat, uh, some AFL if I have time. And I'm also <coughs> interested in um, the English Premier League uh, exact score markets. I've uh, occasionally find a little bit of value there as well. And, and I think that that's, that's most, of, most of what I'm up to these days. So those, I mean, those, the leagues themselves are what many people know to be very efficient leagues. They're obviously major, major betting leagues for, for a lot of bookmakers. And it seems that you're kind of then digging around into the markets within those that perhaps might be a little less efficient. But have you, have you kind of scaled up with your, your modeling and maybe, um, I don't know, gone from KHL or Euro League basketball and, and kind of moved up through those levels to where you're now at a point you need those high limits to kind of get your action down or or is it just you're you're dedicating time to those markets and that's why you're 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 betting on them? Um a little bit of both. I think I would think that um well, I suppose I should say that as your models get more more sophisticated and more nuanced, you can progressively work your way up in more and more efficient markets. It's certainly not the place that you should start, which is a point that I continue to repeat um, over and over again on Twitter and um, and in the book. But uh, but you can definitely get there, provided that your models have a you know a re- the required level of sophistication. And you made a really good point with regards to these sharp markets. Not every sub market or derivative market inside um, what we would consider largely to be a sharp market is at the same level of efficiency. And so as a result of that, there, there are frequently opportunities that present themselves. Uh, props are a really great example uh, of that. And um, with regards to the other things, like, you know, definitely started out with smaller basketball leagues like the Icelandic Women's Basketball League um, and some other, you know, European basketball leagues um, and then worked my way up with the hockey model i never actually focused much on the khl um i really just started uh, with the nhl and eventually progressed it to the point where it um you know it's showing it's showing good value and producing good results even though the market is is quite sharp so you know slightly different approaches for each market although I would say that basketball and baseball are are very sharp and uh, require quite a serious commitment to your model's sophistication. I've had a a lot of talk about modeling. We kind of danced around the subject. Let's let's get into it and and discuss your book as well in a little bit more detail. So you published Statistical Sports Models in Excel earlier this year. And for anyone that hasn't read the book, could you just maybe give us a brief intro into it and and tell, tell us what it's about and why people should read it? Sure. Yes. Statistical Sports Models in Excel is essentially a book that I wish existed when I first got into modeling. Um, It's basically designed to be a crash course in foundational statistical modeling techniques for the explicit purpose of sports betting with the heavy technical language and statistical formula 
uh, formulas removed to make it easier for beginners to understand. And, um, you know, I think it will give the readers some new model ideas, techniques to make their own forecasts for games, and ways to help determine if a model that they've made is working out or not. So really, hopefully it will jumpstart our readers sort of quest or endeavor to build eventually an EV sports betting model. Yeah, I can certainly testify the the book sets out to do exactly what it says on the tin. I mean, I'm, I'm far from an expert on Excel and it certainly taught me a lot in a fairly short space of time. And with Excel being in the title, is that when we talk about your models and, and what you're doing with modeling in general, is that what you're using or are you now looking at kind of different programming languages? Uh, well, as I mentioned in the book, I mean, one of the reasons that I felt safe, I guess you will, to write the book is because I, I have moved on to R and to a lesser extent Python and MySQL databases and things like that. So I'm, I'm using a more sophisticated process now. Um, and obviously as your model becomes more sophisticated or requires more sophistication, uh, tools like that are only going to help you. Um, so, so some of the things that I was doing in Excel previously, I, I'm not really using anymore. And, and so, uh, you know, felt, free to be able to share those with other people and, and have them help other people learn and sort of get up to speed more quickly but at the same time not really have to reveal too too much about what my current betting models are, are looking like or doing and so that was kind of the impetus for the book i think if you you mention excel or python stuff like that you quickly get these battle lines that are kind of drawn in the sand and people are quick to defend whatever they they use the most and I guess as someone that's kind of used those three that we just talked about could you maybe touch upon the the strengths and weaknesses for each for anyone that maybe doesn't know or, or only has knowledge of one say sure yeah I would say you know in, in some ways uh, certainly with R and Python it's very much a Coke versus Pepsi uh, argument um, you know everyone has a maybe a personal favorite but whether or not that's totally justified other than purely familiarity is is sort of uh, not uh, not totally certain. I would say that uh, what it, what's great about Excel is that it's hyper visual. It's point and click interface makes it very easy for someone that is just getting started to understand what's going on behind the scenes. And the most important thing that you could do is is pop the hood and understand what's going on uh, you know with the engine. You want to be able to you know, click on a cell and be able to see the formulas that that cell is using because it helps you understand the processes and the functions. And all of that is going to, you know, build your understanding of what's happening. And I think that that is one of the understated strengths of Excel is that it's so visual that it, it's easy to spot. It's easy to, to troubleshoot mistakes that you've made. It's easy to see what's going on and all of that can provide you with a greater understanding. I would say that its weakness is probably uh, data wrangling, because as um, as many people know, when you get some, you know, any amount, any type of sports betting data, you are going to have to do a tremendous amount of data wrangling to turn that into usable information. So, you know, it's going to have uh, blank blank inputs. So, you know, uh, certain players didn't play that game or uh, they didn't record, you know, a certain statistic that game. They didn't get any rebounds or they didn't get any assists or, uh, 
uh, wh whatever the, the, the data is, there's going to be empty cells, empty values. There's going to be outliers. So maybe inputs that, that aren't totally helpful to what it is that you're trying to do. So, you know, you, generally with, with data science, you want to deal with, you know, your empty, empty values or no values. You want to deal with your outliers. You also would like it to be formatted in a way where, you know, statistical analysis is, um, is easy to do. And so how you structure the columns and the rows is very important. All of that in Excel it, it can be quite challenging. And so when you get into the really heavy work with, with uh, thousands and thousands of data points, that part can be a little bit cumbersome in Excel, certainly. And uh, whether you're, you're talking about importing the data automatically, um, like uh, via scraping from a website, or you are just wrangling the data, which you know, could easily be 70, 80% of the data science process, those two things become fairly tedious in Excel. And that's usually when most people start to think about maybe other options for, for doing it. So that's Excel. R, I would say, you know, I, I've heard mixed things about R in terms of some people really think that it's quite user friendly. Some people think that it is um, almost uninterpretable. And a lot of that seems to have to do with how much of a computer science background you have. It, the computer science background people that I've talked to uh, seem to love Python and have a certain amount of disdain for R just to, because of the way that the um, the inputs are are set up. I personally found R to be very user friendly, um, although I don't have you know a computer science background, so that might be an element to it. Um, I found that the coding was was fairly approachable and and made a certain amount of sense. I would say that its strength is that it's it's was built primarily for academics, and academics uh, usually pioneer the leading edge packages. So whatever you know, if there's a new machine learning algorithm that's just come out, it's very likely to show up on R first. Um, so you can you have a lot of really f totally free cutting edge tools that you can use with R, and I think that that makes it. Uh, very, very useful for sports betting. Um, scraping, uh, web scraping, if you want to scrape odds and things like that, I don't know if it's quite as good as Python. I think that Python is a little bit easier to use for scraping web data. And that, that to me, is the real split. I, I think that R is, is really good for the machine learning and the statistical analysis. It's a little bit um, more cumbersome for the scraping Python is also very good for the machine learning and statistical analysis as well, um, and a little bit better for web scraping. So really, you know, either or, whatever whatever works for people. I think anyone, no matter what their preference, they can't have any complaints with that. That nice description there, Andrew. Very fair, uh, nice description from you, I guess. One of the questions I often have with these these languages is that people tend to say that they're they're kind of similar to a spoken language in the sense that once you learn one, it then becomes a lot easier to learn another. Is that something that you'd agree with? I don't know if I would totally agree with that. It, um, I found R was a lot easier to learn than Python, and that that's just uh, that's just me. Uh, other people would obviously have different experiences. I found that uh, Python just was a little more. It seemed a little more technical to me. I, I guess would be the word I would use to describe it. Certainly not that you can't learn it. And um, 
you know, certainly not that there isn't some level of crossover because there is, but, uh, but R and Python do have different ways of doing things, um, you know, assigning variable names and, and other things like that. And you kind of get used to one and then uh, trying to switch to another, you know, sometimes, you know, you make a few mistakes here and there and you go back and you fix it and carry on. So I, I don't know if, um, I guess in, in one sense, in, in terms of getting your mind used to thinking in code, it is helpful. You know, you learn one and then it becomes easier to learn another one. Uh, but, you know, obviously the details will be different for, for each of those respective programming languages. So if someone, let's imagine someone's kind of hovering over the the purchase button on their book. Obviously, they need to be aware that as good as your book is, it's not a case of buying it, reading it, and you're set to go. You're going to start making money from sports betting and through the the modeling side of things what other obviously learning the languages is one but what skills and traits do you think are important for someone who's interested in using models in their betting skills and traits i would say um first i would say positivity which which may surprise some people but i think that you know if you don't approach it with the right attitude you're going to give up before you ever even get a sniff of success so i think that that's actually a very um undervalued uh, <clears throat> attribute um, a curiosity I would say because really when you when you're trying to develop things for yourself you have to ask in, instead of uh, you know having a negative sort of attitude and sort of predetermining why certain things won't work or are unlikely to work it's much better and more helpful to be curious and to ask yourself well what if you know what what if this worked or what if we could do things like this and you try it so you know, sort of a curiosity and a, a willingness to explore and experiment, even at the risk of, of a, a foolish or silly experiment, I think is um, a really, really positive trait. Um, also, you know, the ability to think critically and analytically and to consider, you know, contrary or contemporaneous evidence to the contrary of why, why something might, you know, or, or might not be causally related or, or connected. Those are all good things to have as well. Uh, and really just a, a desire to keep learning and keep improving because the moment that you think that, you know, you finished learning is sort of a dangerous moment for a modeler because it's very much an arms race when it, when you're building a model that is trying to outpace the market. My, my next question is probably going to be quite an obvious one, but someone needs to they're at this point in their their kind of their journey to to trying to become a better a better better um for what for whatever reason these kind of skills and traits that you've just described they're aware of them they haven't quite clicked them into place in the past how the the thing is people want money to almost find that motivation but if someone isn't at that point yet how do you what would you say to someone that says look I'm really struggling I know what I need to do but I just can't get that kind of final little push to do it. Is there anything you'd say to them that would help them get there? Yeah, there's a there's a quote from the founder of IBM um, that my my dad used to say when we were little kids. That was, if you want to double your rate of success, you need to double your rate of failure. Um, which was, I always thought was kind of an interesting quote. You know, you there's something about that where you really have to get your hands dirty and you have to start making some mistakes because when you make mistakes and you learn from them, you will improve. 
whatever it is that you're doing. You, you continue to keep reading, you continue to keep trying to find new ideas, but above all, keep, keep trying things and keep making mistakes because every mistake that you make, you're going to learn from that. You're going to realize, okay, that didn't work. And you're going to build for yourself almost like a database in your mind of experimental ideas that kind of worked or didn't work or looked promising. And when you start amassing those, you start having better ideas. And so, you know, a lot of people seem to think that, you know, maybe they can just, they can just think about one thing, uh, code it, put it all together and boom, it's going to work and instant glory and riches. And, and that's just really not the way that it works. You, you really have to, you have to learn from your mistakes and you have to make a lot of mistakes in order to, to get to where you want to be. I think there's another ex expression that an expert is someone that's made every mistake that can be made in a very narrow field. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Props to your dad, Andrew. I think you grew up in the right household for betting. So outside of kind of inspirational IBM quotes, and if we're, we're looking at kind of tools or resources that people might use to not shift that mindset, but to help them develop the actual skills to, to build models and kind of help them to, to find success in, in betting, what is there any websites or blogs or, or any kind of material out there that you've thought that was really useful in, in your journey? Um, I would say there is one, and forgive me for starting off maybe at the more complicated end, but there is an ebook currently out by a guy named Jason Brownlee from Australia, and it's called Machine Learning Mastery. And it's an ebook series on both R and Python. And the premise of his ebook is essentially that uh, developers don't always understand the statistical nuances of machine learning. So he put together these ebooks where he gives you a crash course in machine learning and then walks you through uh, templates of code to run all of the various machine learning models. So they're, they're, it's almost like a, a basic templates for every machine learning model that you might want to start with, whether it's regression or classification. And he goes through a number of different things. And basically the, the example code that he gives you, you know, he uses some very simple example data sets, but the example code is worth, you know, a hundred times the price of the ebook because you have an example to visually see, you know, how to work this in. And you can take out the example data, plug in sports data and just try it and you will immediately begin slowly understanding how you might be able to apply machine learning to a sports data uh, data set. And I think that that is that that's probably one of the best machine learning resources that's available. Um, very, very helpful and definitely helped me to get up to speed uh, in both R and Python for, for the actual machine learning element of it. So I would, I'd recommend that if people are interested in that, that they should definitely check it out. Um, with regards to some of the more basic stuff, it, um, <clears throat> you know, Google is your friend. I think that's been said before. Uh, I think Rob 
Pizzola said that on his in his chat with you, but it's so true. You know, Google is your friend. You know, if you if you have like a little notepad and you write down statistical terms and things that seem interesting, um, and then just start Googling them and trying to look for for research papers or videos or anything that you can find that might help explain that, that's very useful. You know, you might want to know, well, what is a what is a Bradley Terry model? What is a Glico rating system? How is it different from an ELO rating system? Um, what is the true skill rating? Um, what what is multi culinarity? Uh, what is what what does a p value mean? How is it different from a t stat value? Um, there are so many so many questions that you can ask, and really, how how helpful Google is to you is very dependent on how good the questions that you ask are. So. Um, that, that was definitely a huge point for me. And uh, I think that that's something that a lot of people should focus on as well if, if they're trying to improve. Uh, what else did I do? I pretty much bought every statistical modeling and sports betting book that I can get my hands on. Um, absolutely outrageous amount of books here at the moment. <laughs> um, let's see. I mean, basically, I've got everything, everything from uh, algebra and calculus textbooks to probability textbooks, Bayesian textbooks, data science books uh, for R and Python, machine learning model books, um, and almost every sports betting book that has ever been written. <laughs> so um, try to read as much as I can about how other people have approached these kind of problems. Uh, not because I want to copy what they're doing, but because you never know when one little sentence or one little paragraph or one little example is going to give you kind of a light bulb going off in your head that, you know, pays for the price of the book a hundred times over. And that's that happens in almost every book. There's something in there that you think, oh, that's kind of interesting. Maybe um, maybe I, I should I should try and work with that or give it a try. Uh, where else can you look for good tools and resources? I really like uh, reading statistical research papers um, to see what what academics have done with regards to sport. There are there are literally thousands of masters uh, thesis and PhD theses where people have tried to solve the same problems. And and while they've given away most of of what they're doing in terms of methodology. There are some really good ideas there, and you can you can get some really excellent concepts about maybe some some superior ways to think about the problem. And if you if you have some tools to help you think about the problem, you're going to come up with with better solutions. So, you know, reading research papers, even if you don't understand the entire paper, I think is a very very useful thing to do. Uh, what else have I done? I I've contacted and had meetings with uh, professors in the statistics department at university um, just to sort of ask them some questions about about various techniques, about Bayesian statistics and, um, you know, things like that. That was kind of tricky. I, you know, because academics are very risk adverse generally, and they're not usually very keen on betting. So you have to sort of ask these questions without telling them that that's kind of what you're interested in, um, which, which can be a little bit of a, of a tricky situation. But I did learn some things from uh, a few of the professors at, uh, 
at the university here from from just sort of talking to them. Um, that was kind of handy too. And um, what else? You know, sort of back to a previous point, but just experimentation. You know, you never know what you're going to find just by trying different things. And one example I can give of that is there there are a number of like random Excel plugins, for example, that some of them turn out to be pretty handy. So I found a, a plugin for Excel called the Chess Ranking Assistant. And the Chess Ranking Assistant allows you to input the names of chess players in your you know, high school chess team, group, whatever, and uh, input the match results and press a couple of buttons and it will automatically calculate the ELO ratings for all the players. It will automatically calculate the Glico ratings for all the players. and um, and you can use that to predict it, it will give you like a basic forecast for who would be likely to win a game between player four and player two. Um, not not like you're going to be able to create, you know, a full rolled out betting model with that, but that could be very handy for learning how, you know, a rating system like ELO or Glico work. So there's a, you know, a lot of little plugins that you can play with to sort of, um, you know, find new ideas and things like that. So just to, just to sorry, put myself in the the shoes of this beginner, this aspiring model builder, there, you very kindly lent them your library of books. They're doing all they can, reading all these materials. But for some people, it's kind of nice to have a an example. And I don't want to kind of give too much away from your book or anything like that. But obviously, the the process of kind of creating, testing, refining, and measuring that goes into a model. Can you just kind of speak a little bit to? to what's actually involved and perhaps maybe use one of your, your previous examples? Sure. I'll actually, I actually uh, pre- prepared a new example for today because I know that a lot of listeners are interested in the finer technical details and, and some, sometimes they can get frustrated when we talk from a 30,000 foot view about these things. And so um, I have two, two examples, two different approaches that I think will be helpful. One, one of them is for props and one of them, Actually, they're both for props. One of them is um, a little more um, traditional sort of handicapping, and the other one is more statistically uh, oriented. So I'll just start with the the quick one first, which is, um, I don't know if you want to consider this another resource or if this is more of a process, but for for something like props, the best possible advice that I could give someone that's just starting that has no idea what to do um, would be to pick one team from a league or one player from a team and watch that player or that team for an entire season and take notes, but not take notes about the things that fans are interested in. Uh, observe the game from a, you know, an analytical perspective and focus on the things that might add or subtract from a given prop line. So, um, the reason that I say that is because, you know, in many cases, there are certain elements that are not fully included in the line that can become apparent if you watch the game with the right sort of analytical approach. And the example that I'd like to give is NBA rebounding props. Now, most people know that rebounds are uh, Poisson in nature. And it's been talked about in a number of other books about, you know, rebounding props. And you can do a lot of statistical analysis on rebounding props, which is all very well and good. Um, 
with this particular example, we're going to go in a slightly different direction, which is if you say that you were to just pick one basketball player and watch, watch them every game that they played for an entire season and take notes. Don't watch where the ball necessarily is. I mean, most of the fans are, watch, are watching to see the ball go through the hoop, which is the entertainment element of it. What you really want to watch is the positioning on the floor, where the players are situated relative to the other players, who they're guarding, who they're matched up against, and you know some of the characteristics of that matchup. And <clears throat> the reason that I'm saying all this is because you know, a player that is tasked with defending um, a, an opponent that has a different sort of um, attack scheme or, or attack tendency can definitely affect that player's rebound opportunities. So if, an, if, if the opponent that the player is matched up against is someone that uh, likes to drive to the paint to make layups and, uh, you know, close to the bucket shots, that has a tendency to collapse the defense towards the basket, which means that your player in this prop scenario is closer to the basket and therefore more likely to get defensive rebounds. And defensive rebounds make up the bulk of the rebounding opportunities in a given game for the purposes of total rebound props. Um, conversely, if an opponent that th this player is matched up against is a perimeter wing or a perimeter shooter, the defending player is going to be closer to the three-point line further away from the basket and as a result they're not going to get as many defensive rebound opportunities because the center or whoever is is closest to the basket is more likely to grab those and so um, you would be able to ascertain that by watching the player over the course of a season and taking notes on those things but it might not be fully included in the line and it might not be as easy to see that if you're just looking at the data of you know their average rebounds per game or their average rebounds versus uh you know this particular team or whatever else there was an interview by bob vulgaris where in the interview he said that one of his most important questions and he described having six or eight televisions uh, all in front of him where he would watch six or eight NBA games simultaneously and take notes to to sort of supplement his statistical model. But the question that he thought was one of the most important was what's not in the line, right? What kind of information might we be able to get from the games that's not already in the current market line? And so I thought that was a great question, very helpful question. And, and that is just kind of one, one little sort of almost qualitative example of a way that you could start to develop some insights of your own by watching NBA games for a total rebound prop opportunity. Um, to get <clears throat> to get into the you know some finer details about you know how we might go about building a model, I would um, I guess I'll now transition to a basic a basic sort of framework for how you might put together a model for a prop like um, expected strikeouts in Major League Baseball. <clears throat> so in this example, um, yeah, we're just going to do expected strikeouts for a, a number of strikeouts prop bet, something that you can find on most, most books, including Pinnacle. The first step for me is I actually brainstorm the ideal case. So 
I ask, kind of ask myself an open-ended question or, or conceptualize it in an open-ended way to try and get the, the brainstorming going. So I would say something like, if you could tell me exactly how many batters pitcher X will face and exactly what his strikeout percentage would be, I could tell you his expected number of strikeouts. Now, that's just to sort of get the ideas the ideas moving. It's obviously we're never going to be able to to do that perfectly, but we want to try and come up with ideas that might help us approximate that. So that leads to the next question, which is, you know, what kind of information would we need to try and approximate this or turn this into a reality? Well, the first step <clears throat> is going to be to create a base expectation for strikeouts or strikeout rate because there's more than one way to do it. If you look at pure strikeouts, um, there's going to be a little bit of statistical noise in there because we're not really mapping the underlying process. We're mapping the result, and um, which is something that I, I talk about a little bit in the book. But you know, we, we might want to take, uh, say, say that we're going to do Walker Bueller as the pitcher, and we maybe the first thing that we should do is take all the games he's played, how many strikeouts he's got, and do a distribution fitting to see what what kind of distribution appears to fit the data. And we might discover that it's largely Poisson in nature, which will help us when we want to convert our base expectation into a probability later. Um, so <clears throat> back to creating the base expectation, um, how can we take strikeouts and convert them into something that maybe is more predictive, like a strikeout, expected strikeout rate, because what's actually happened, there'd be a little bit of noise, and if we could get rid of that, that would really be handy. Well, we'll probably, to do strikeout rate, we'll probably be using some permutation of a, of a regression uh, analysis of some kind. And as it turns out, you know, there, there are a number of resources online available for this particular uh, prop, and uh, certainly there are more advanced ways to do this, but it's possible to create a regression for expected strike rate using um, a pitcher's strike percentage, their looking strike percentage, their swinging strike percentage, and their foul strike percentage. And if you put all those together, you can come up with um, a regression model that does a pretty decent job of mapping the expected strike rate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so if we have now an expected strike rate as a base forecast, we now need to make an, a few additional refinements, right? So obviously there are a few other things that we know about this game that's about to be played that we can use to help us. The first is the opponent, right? How, what's the opponent's strike rate look like? And if we can go as deep into this as necessary or, or you know, as high level as necessary, but for the purposes of simplicity, let's just assume that we're looking at, we're just gonna look at some, some team-based stuff. So the opposing team, we might wanna know how how good or bad are they in terms of their strike rate? Are these uh, is this a team that strikes out a lot because they're swinging hard at at every pitch, or are they very selective and they you know they walk a lot and whatever? So an easy way to do that would be to take the teams the opponent team's strike rate and divide it by the league average strike rate to get a percentage adjustment. And if we do that for every team, we will end up with you know, 0 0.99 or 1.02. So, you know, 2% above average, 1% below average, etc. If we use that and multiply it by 
the expected strike rate, we now have an adjustment for the opponent's um, expected strike rate as well. So now we have the pitcher's expected strike rate based on a linear regression, as well as uh, an opponent adjustment. So if we if we take that and say that that's our base expectation, uh, which which has now been adjusted for an opponent in a albeit simplistic way, we now need to know a few other things to answer the the question that we sort of posed to ourselves in the at, at the outset of this. We need to know um, how many batters we expect Walker Bueller to face for every inning that he pitches, and we also need to know. Um, how many innings do we expect him to pitch? Because obviously, the larger the number of batters that he faces at a given strikeout rate, the higher the number of strikeouts should be, which only makes sense. So that's the next step of the process. So we might, uh, I mean, we could just look at averages to be simple here, um, or like, like I said, you know, you could, um, you can go much more in depth than that, and certainly you should. But if we take um, if we take the expected innings pitched and we times it by the expected batters faced per inning pitched and we times that by our opponent adjusted expected strike rate, we should have an expected number of strikeouts. And then that would be the number that we can take and plug into a Poisson distribution and then derive a probability for whether Walker Buehler should be over or under you know, X amount of strikeouts given a market price. And, uh, and that, that's, that would be sort of a basic walkthrough of a prop model. Um, there are other ways to do it, of course. You could take the mean and standard deviation for Walker Bueller's expected strikeout rate. You could run some Monte Carlo simulations of varying complexity, um, track those pro projections, you know, for, for multiple pitchers against the market using um, log loss RMSE. MAE stuff like that but uh, but that would be a basic process I think the the law school and the betting Andrew you might have to look into becoming a lecturer <laughs> thanks I mean that was really great I'm, I'm sure the listeners found that very useful that's uh, thanks for that what I'd what I'd like to know then is you kind of get you you get these outputs and and your model kind of gives you something of a, a probability where you're then looking at a discrepancy between what you derive and then what the market actually posts I'm I'm guessing here that you don't go then straight into to using Kelly or whatever it might be to start betting are you suggesting kind of people test back test against like uh, historical data sets of odds or is it small stakes to start with to kind of test things out what's the next step from there uh, well yeah you, you definitely want to do uh, all of the above I, I would say for the love of God don't go full Kelly immediately when you find a discrepancy that's a recipe for disaster um you know for for a number of reasons not the least of which is that full kelly um underestimates the probability of ruin and if you burn out your entire bankroll you are effectively uh finished for the time being as a sports better so that needs to be kept in the forefront of, of your mind at all times um you definitely want to track this number of ways to track it um obviously you know lots of different arguments about the efficacy of closing line value and, and how predictive it is. Um, what I think is most useful for people to know is that closing line value is a metric that can provide you with a better estimation of your long-term profit potential 
and this is the key, with fewer trials than profit or ROI. So, so if you if you don't want to back test it on you know an entire season of of props and collect all that data and whatever you know you could you could get a pretty good idea of how well you might do by tracking the CLV paper trading on a smaller number of trials, which can make the CLV very handy for that. How you actually want to track it is is um, some somewhat of a matter of of personal preference. If you probably certainly want to consider log loss because obviously we're we're creating our own probabilities and then we're comparing them to the market's probabilities. So uh, whose probabilities are better? Um, that's something that we definitely want to know, which log loss can help with. Um, if you would prefer, you can also look at the, um, the mean absolute error, which would tell you, you know, who's doing a better job of actually predicting the number of strikeouts or the the count data in this case. Um, and that's that's true whether it's a you know point spread or a total or in this case a number of strikeouts. So there's a number of ways that you can you can track it, but you definitely should track it to to see if you have a reasonable expectation of profit. And if you do, um, you know, then then it's time to start looking into, you know, okay, total bankroll size, um, some variation of fractional Kelly, like quarter Kelly or half Kelly, or, you know, if you're, if you're not totally confident after testing it and tracking it, you may want to use flat staking. Um, but whatever you use, you definitely want to track it once you think that you have something that might work. And then with the, the CLV side of things, and I think you kind of spoke a little bit earlier about these derivative markets that you're, you're personally attacking because you believe that they're inefficient and things like that. Is it, with that, is that because you're you're then using that to measure? Obviously, you don't really be using ROI, but is it closing line value is the only thing that increases your sample size to kind of test your your relative success? Uh, I would say that what I like about CLV is that it can give me a better picture of of how the model is likely to do in the future with a smaller sample size. So, if, for example, you were going to just paper trade like a month of games. Um, Doing that with tracking CLV should uh, theoretically give you a better snapshot of how this model is likely to do as opposed to just ROI or profit where you would need literally thousands of trials in order to get a p-value that was sufficiently low to reject the null hypothesis. So um, I think that CLV is useful in that respect. Um, and I know people have very strong opinions about these things. You see all kinds of wild arguments on Twitter about that. But <laughs> So I guess for those specific ones, we could kind of say maybe a, a benchmark, not necessarily this this holy grail of the, the line for success in betting. I Yeah, I um, for a lot of the markets like point spreads and totals, even if it's in uh, quarters or, or halves, I really like um, mean absolute error. I, I like to see that, um, I have a model that maybe is beating the book on them in, in terms of mean absolute error. So for example, I, I recently created a model and I don't want to talk too, too much about it, but it took about 60 hours to build and it, the, it's got about a 0 0.45, um, mean absolute error advantage over a certain book 
that's not pinnacle. And, um, and that's something that I'd, I definitely like to see. Um, especially for something like a point spread or a total. Um, I think that MAE is very useful. Um, although again, you can't just take 10 games and compare the MAE and then decide that you've got, you know, the, the magic wand, that's not going to work. If you're going to use something like MAE or log loss, you want to have a large number of out of sample trials in order to make sure that whatever you're seeing is statistically significant because you can have a model that looks really, really great for the first 200 bets or the first 500 bets, but whether or not it still looks great after 5,000 bets is a very different story frequently. And this, so far, we've been we've been fairly positive, and I think the, the whole point of this podcast is to kind of educate people about the modeling side of things, but there are obviously people out there that, that are not so positive or not so kind of fond of, of using that approach, and I mean fair play if any of those have listened to an hour of this podcast and got to this point but if anyone is listening and kind of says the the classic oh this sport isn't played on a spreadsheet or whatever it might be I think there's there's NFL coaches out there that very recently have been saying oh we don't we don't trust the analytics guys as much as we should if you're put in a room with that kind of person you've got say one minute to to pitch your case what do you say to someone that thinks like that well, I guess I guess the um, if that's I mean if that's the criticism, I guess I would say that the beautiful thing about science is you don't have to believe in it for it to be true. Uh, <laughs> it's not a it's not a belief system, and it's not a it's not a faith system. It's not about whether you trust it or not. It's about uh, I mean analytics. You know, in, in terms of uh, you should go for it on fourth down here or something um, in in whatever situation the game may be currently in. That they're not they're not belief systems. They are, they are things that, you know, are, are objectively demonstrably true. And so I I would say that, you know, for coaches and and people that are interested in objectively demonstrably winning, um, you might want to look at things that can increase that likelihood, which are also demonstrably true. Um, I would also say that I think the main, the main criticism and, and, you know, Lots of these criticisms are justified and, and need to be talked about and and at least uh, considered when it comes to modeling. The main criticism that I think you hear a lot with modeling is that mo- this model can't add anything to the market line. The market contains so much information about this game that it's very unlikely that your model adds anything different. That's that's a serious criticism, and it it's something that needs to be taken seriously. Um, there's there's a few a few caveats that should probably be be mentioned as well. For a basic model, I think that that is largely true. And although you can alleviate that to some extent with techniques like the Benter Boost that I talk about in my book and, and other market weightings, um, that this is a real concern, uh, especially for basic models. But certainly, this is not always true. Uh, it's not always true for sophisticated models, and it's certainly not true for all games not every game is equally efficient to every other game and so um, i think that what you can see is that while the market on the aggregate is very very efficient as a whole individual games can be inefficient and the whole idea of modeling is is to be able to try and identify those games and to maximize you know the advantage that you have by by singling out those games um, I guess the other thing that I would mention is that 
you know, the, the market, the book line and, and a modeler don't share the exact same objective, which is a beautiful thing that makes uh, profitable sports betting possible. Um, we're not, the bookmaker, like, you know, Pinnacle is not trying to necessarily have the exact probability of, of the game. I mean, obviously, that's a large part of what they do because they're such a sharp book, but they're also, they, they have to manage risk. And that risk in necessarily entails dealing with the proclivities of the market. And if, if the market overwhelmingly thinks that one side versus the other is, is more likely to win and bets more on that, they are going to be, you know, incentivized to adjust their line and to move the market price, um, even if it disagrees with what they may think uh, using their own models is a, a more accurate probability. And so um, you can't add anything to the market line uh, on the aggregate for a basic model. Yeah, that's a that's a valid concern for every game uh, all the time even using a sophisticated model, I don't think that that's true. And I think you kind of suggested it earlier, but do you think there's kind of room in, if you're taking an approach with, with modeling your sports betting, is there room for intuition? Can you react or, or kind of jump on something before your, your model has a chance to adapt? Uh, sometimes. Um, you know, if you pay a lot of attention to like line moves and uh, and and the mark the changing marketplace. I think that and you know your model very very well. I think that there are times where you can look, you can look at the market pricing, and you can say, oh that without even looking at the model, that looks very interesting. Now I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on that without actually running it through a model. But but there are definitely times where I can look at the the slate of games for a day. And the prices, and I can say that one looks really interesting. I really want to investigate that particular game, and um, and and so, you know, I don't know if you would really call that intuition or not, or, or if that's just the the benefit of of some experience. But um, I definitely think that you know that there is maybe an element of that. But um, certainly, I would not do all of this modeling work if I was just going to gut shot bet these games like I did seven years ago. <laughs> Right, I've got a couple of, there's a couple of final questions I want to ask you, and one of them's kind of to do with um, education. I mean, you've obviously taken the step to, to write a book to try and help educate people. Pinnacle's really big on, on education and the articles we put out there, and we are seeing a lot more educational content being put out. And what that's kind of leading to is this more, it certainly seems like a more educated betting audience, and the fact that we're, we're doing a podcast about modeling in sports betting shows how far things have come do you think i mean from a, a personal perspective or experience do you think this approach is catching up with bookmakers and they're struggling to to handle the way people are betting nowadays that's a really interesting question like i said before i i mean modeling against the market is very much an arms race it's never it's never a process that's finished it's just always a question of relative strength and as long so you always have to try and keep your relative strength as high as possible uh, against a rising tide of, of increasingly more sophisticated competition. Um, I don't know if bookmakers are really struggling to keep up. I mean, a lot of bookmakers have a sort of a recreational model where 
if it if it appears to them like you're you have a reasonable expectation of profit, they're going to limit you or uh, you know close your account or whatever. Um, are they struggling with this? No. Um, and and in you know the opposite side, a, a book like Pinnacle, I I doubt that they're struggling with this as well because they they incorporate the, that the information of their sharpest betters into the line, and so I think that Marco Bloom referred to the sharp betters in in a in a conference uh, talk that he gave as uh, as consultants, which I found very very interesting and insightful, um, very very instructive in terms of the relationship that Pinnacle uh, conceptualizes with their the sharp betters at their at their site, but. It doesn't in any way suggest to me that they are struggling to keep up with this because I think that they're they're able to uh, use that and incorporate it into their trading algorithms to manage the risk the way that they best see fit. And so, um, does it mean that uh, that inefficiencies are getting smaller? Um, in many ways, yes, I think that's true. I think that uh, you are seeing the the expected edges on a lot of uh, larger markets getting smaller and and getting harder to to sort of keep up but i don't think that books either very very recreational books or very sharp books are would be particularly struggling although i should say that i don't have uh any access to that information so that's just speculation on my part final one for you andrew then is what does the future have in store are you gonna you're gonna carry on down this legal sector route or is the goal to to go full time with betting once you've completed your studies, what's what's the plan? Well, right now, I mean, I'm leaning towards betting, uh, taking a run at doing this professionally. I think that when law school is finished and I'm able to do this every day, that I have a reasonable expectation of profit in enough different markets and with a large enough bankroll that I think uh, I think I've got a decent shot at this. So I think I think that's what I'm going to do. Um, you know, the at the end of the day, um, <clears throat> I can probably make more betting on sports than I can in my first couple of years of being a practicing lawyer. Um, and I don't know if that's a maybe a sad statement on the uh, the current legal market economy in Canada or or what. But um, but not only does it seem like like I could probably do better at this, uh, it's something that I really enjoy. Like I don't mind putting in 12 hour days if that's what it takes with sports betting. And so that that's definitely where I'm, the way that I'm leaning. Uh, a couple of things are gonna have to happen for that uh, to, to work out for me. I'm definitely gonna have to pursue more higher levels of automation. And um, I'm also gonna have to look to uh, increasing my betting volume substantially, which I think is why I'm spending so much time on perfecting my models and you know still betting of course but but really focusing on the modeling work right now because i'd like to have as many tools in my arsenal um so that uh, in about eight months time here um i'll be in a a good position to to move forward well, best of luck uh i think that's all we have time for today i mean you're, you're clearly very busy so for myself and the listeners i want to say thanks for coming on to share your insight and and helping us learn more about everything to do with modeling and sports betting Oh, it's been a pleasure, Ben. Thank you for having me. And Andrew's book, Statistical Sports Models in Excel, is available on Amazon, and you can follow him on Twitter using what I assume is a Wu-Tang Clan-inspired handle with at gingefacekiller. Is that right, Andrew? That's right. There we go. And you can keep up to date with Pinnacle on Twitter by following at Pinnacle Sports. 
If you want to learn more about what we discussed in today's podcast and anything to do with betting in general, then head to betting resources, the betting resources section on the Pinnacle website. Thanks for listening and bye for now.